son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Welcome to episode 17 of the Rex Chapman Show with super awesome Josh Hopkins. This is uh, this is the Hondo Havlicek episode 17. 17, 17. Yeah, yeah. Mullen, Chris Mullen. Mully, it's the Chris yeah. Mullen episode. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Yes, it is. I uh, can't wait. We got a good guest today, though. You know? Yeah. Uh, please p- preview it. Let's don't keep them waiting. Tell us who it is. We have Ferguson Jenkins, Fergie Jenkins, a Cy Young winner, a old timer who is just, he's on Twitter now. Somebody I find in, incredibly fascinating. Um, he's had quite a life. I look forward to this a lot. Quite a life. Quite a life. Uh, anyway, what's going on, buddy? How are you? I'm good, man. What uh, uh, We should uh, do the book club, where we uh, what we've read this week. Um, yeah. What have you read, Rex? Nothing. Me either. That's been book club. What about the playoffs? What do you... Oh, um, can't wait. I mean, these are... It's been... It's been a lot of fun. I'm back you, in Phoenix. You you know you you you're you said you thought the Nets would win. And to be fair, injuries, so whatever. But at this point, would you say the Suns are the favorite? You know, I don't I'm a little bit of a homer, Suns Homer, and I'm not afraid to admit it. But um <laughs> I think I think they're the most complete team. Uh, remaining. If I had to lay odds, I would probably say the Bucks, just based on their playoff, previous playoff experience the last couple of years, I think has served them really well. Mm-hmm. They have an MVP type guy right now in Giannis who gets a ton of calls. Also, he's impossible not to like. I mean, that guy, uh, yes, he doesn't shoot the ball well, um, but he he's a fantastic basketball player and he he's a guy, you know, you watch all the interviews, you see all the things that he does and says and all that. He, he's a guy that if I'm just a fan, a father of, of kids and they want Giannis's Jersey, I get him Giannis's Jersey. Oh, yeah. Good he's world. a good guy. Yeah. He's a yeah. good guy. And he's a good he, guy. But do you think he's the best player left and and not considering the best playoff basketball player left amongst the teams, amongst all the players uh, left? Uh, 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 I think Chris Paul is. Okay. You just yeah. think he's been think, through it enough. I and- think he's got – I think he – I think if you, you know, could pick your point guards to, you know, possibly play the last six games of – of the season to win a title um, and you all had all the point guards available in the whole NBA, you'd have to think long and hard about Chris Paul just to man as a game manager. I mean, yes, not yes, going to turn the yes. ball over. You give him your game plan and let him go. So, you know, with him back, um, 
you know, without him, it was a little dicey, but with him back, I think, you know, they just continue to roll. Hopefully they'll finish off the Clippers. The Clippers have put up a terrific fight, but it, I, I want to ask something because a guy at the airport actually asked me this uh, yesterday. He said, what do you think about Kawhi sitting up in the suite with his team in the playoffs? And I went, yeah, you know, I struggle with that because I think, you know, Bill Russell wouldn't have done that. And, you know, guys in our era, Michael, if you're hurt, you sit on the bench. Um, yeah. you, you're down there with your team. Now, if he's on crutches, I get it. Maybe that's different, right. but I, I don't see, you know, I, Kobe, I mean, when LeBron's hurt, he's down there on the bench. He's out there. Right. Um, and, and it may not be a big deal for that team. And some teams right. don't, don't care. Uh, but I, I've found on the teams that I was on when a guy separates themselves from the, from the that unit, it can rub some people the wrong way. So I, I just wondered how, what you thought. And, and did you even think about it? Not until this second, because I don't, I, you know, not as intimate with the game as you are, but it would seem to possibly open the door to raising the question is truly the team chemistry, the problem That's all. With, the, yeah. with the Clippers, because they've obviously got the pieces, but is that what, it is it's just that that could be very indicative of their problem yeah and and again it, this could be nothing this was a question somebody asked me i mm-hmm. i you know and i tend to give guys the benefit of the doubt like i thought now i you know i i don't know what i thought i i right. do know when it, it, it struck me when they first showed the the picture of him sitting in the suite i kind of went oh, interesting um because I expected him to be down on the court. So anyway, I just yeah, thought I'd I just thought I'd throw some shit into the air and and see what sticks. You know, you know. Well, I enjoyed your perspective on that. Uh, who do you have? Who you got coming out of the East, Josh? Oh, I'd say the Nets. Just kidding, they're out. <laughs> You're silly. <laughs> You're so silly. I mean, it's obviously gotta. Uh, be honest in the Bucks, right? Yeah, I think I mean, so. And then pretty who, much, they've they've got- established unless Ice Tray goes crazy, who's become almost just appointment TV. Yeah, he's, he he's different. The way he pats that ball, the way he moves, the way he gets other guys shots, the way he is not afraid of the moment. You need to you need to pay it, peep this though. Something I've noticed about him. He's really fast. He's got a great stride. He runs like he, he, he without the ball. Just watch him move from one end of the floor to the other. He he glides. He's got great feet. The other thing about him is he he makes the Stevie Nash left-handed hook pass on the money to anywhere on the floor going to his left. Just right. you know passes that I would have been going to my left and then made this way. <laughs> right, you know, like that. I would have been going to my left and been like, I can't go to my left. I dribbled out of bounds. So yeah, you can't a, dribble out of bounds when you're inbounding. You know, ah, that's a can't great dribble. Point. Yeah. Um. Well, bud, you want to get to Fergie? Let's get to Fergie. I'd Jr. love to. I'd love to. 
Let's do it. Ferguson, Arthur Jenkins Jr. Fergie Jenkins joining us. How about this? Yeah. Happy to have Fergie. you, Fergie. You're Thank our you. second, you're our first baseball player, but second Canadian. We had Katie Lang on, and uh, I wore this in honor of you. Um, you were once named the best athlete in all of Canada. You got that award. What's, what's that like to be the best athlete in an entire country? Well, I won the Lou Mars Trophy several times, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it doesn't impact you until you hear it from someone else because <laughs> I'm, I'm playing a sport that I loved, baseball, and uh, when the season's over, you get judged on what your performance was all about. So, you know, people kind of put you in a category, and, uh, and it happens. You know, I, I played against a lot of good players, and then all of a sudden – you got a category against Gordy Howe, Bobby Hull, other right. other athletes that, that are Canadian. Right. So, you know, and and it, it it's not astounding that 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 particular thing happens, but you're proud of the fact that uh, you're you're in, in the same consideration of, of these other great athletes. Sure, and more than consideration, you, the best athlete in all Canada. That's amazing, man. That's amazing. Yeah, well, it is. Amazing. I played a sport that uh, took a lot of skill, and I had good teammates behind me. So you don't you don't always do or accomplish things alone. So there's there's a lot of other people involved. Was was baseball your first sport? Your only sport? I know you played other sports later, but did, what was the first sport you played that you you were like, well, you know, I'm pretty good at this. I was hockey. That was my first sport. Really? Uh, I played as high as uh, a junior B, uh, and I, I enjoyed playing in a little small town, Chatham, Ontario. And uh, Gene DeJura, the, the scout that ended up signing me with the Phillies, thought that uh, hockey was not going to be my best sport. You know, <laughs> and and he, he seen me play baseball, but I was a first baseman, a kid, 15, 16 years old. And... Uh, he had an opportunity to evaluate my arm, and he, he had, we wanted to know why I didn't try to pitch. And I said, oh, we have pitchers on our team. And lo and behold, uh, within <laughs> one and a half, three years after that, I signed a pro contract with the Phillies. <laughs> that's the amazing. They just had never pitched you before? That That's just it? No, that was the answer. I, I just never volunteered to pitch. We had we had guys like Jack Howell, Matt Kundal, Dennis Roebuck, and uh, Eddie Myers. And uh, they were the pitchers on the team, and I wanted to play regular, so I wanted to play first base with Eddie Robbins. So there were two first basements we had. And uh, as he said, lo and behold, within a year, I turned 16. My birthday's in the winter months. So I turned 16. That next year, uh, I was pitching. <laughs> That's amazing. You didn't pitch till you were 16, and you ended up being one of the all-time greats, a Cy Young winner. Uh, the most uh, there's like three people that have over three thousand strike strikeouts with. Yeah, there's four of us. There's four of us. There's, there's four. Greg Maddox, Greg Maddox, uh, uh, Schilling, and uh, uh, come on, the Spanish player. I'm trying to think of uh, Pedro Martinez. I know. I know. Pedro, Pedro, right? Pedro. Yeah, there's four of us. That's uh, that's amazing. Over three thousand strikeouts uh, right. with less than one thousand balls, Lost. and you didn't start. You didn't get on the mound and really pitch till you were 16? That's 16 crazy. years old. Yeah. And, 
You know, Gene and I would work out every Tuesday and Thursday nights at local gymnasium, CCI, in my hometown, Chatham, just pitching, throwing. And uh, within uh, that following summer, I pitched a no-hitter in the playoffs. I had a couple of low-pitch <laughs> low, low pitch games. And all of a sudden, I've got Pittsburgh. I've got the Red Sox, the Cubs, uh, the White Sox. i got I, like six teams coming to my hometown wanting to see me pitch. And because of the fact that the Phillies worked with me the most, I decided to sign with that organization. Wow. It seems you know, uh, to me real quickly that, I mean, obviously you're just a magnificent athlete to be able to do that. But I was that fortunate also- enough to, to play, to play and, and as I said, good teammates. You know, the reflection of you playing is not you as an individual a lot of times, although I had some success. Guys behind you, win ball games for you. So. Sure, but but <laughs> you, that's very humble to get on there at 16. You must also be a really fantastic student to pick up like that, like a, a, a way to concentrate more, more than most. Did you, ever, did you ever think that about yourself? Like, oh, he told me once and I figured it out. <laughs> well, yeah, I think uh, because the fact that Gene DeJuro is, was an ex-player himself, he, he was my mentor. He, he came as a tutor. So he would show me, uh, he showed me a, a real easy windup, which I ended up using almost my whole career. Uh, the grips on certain pitches. And I was very fortunate enough in the Philly organization. I went to winter ball two years in Puerto Rico. Cal McClish was my pitching coach, taught me the slider. And then uh, the late Freddie Martin taught me a changeup. And those pitches combined with my fastball, a little bit of the curveball I had, those four pitches got me to win ball games. So I, it wasn't all by myself. <laughs> you know, you learn from other people. You know, I, I, I'm listening, and I, I lived in Phoenix. For, I'm in Phoenix today, but I, I lived in Phoenix for quite a while. And one thing that I realized very quickly is it's baseball year round here. You know, it's it's warm weather. We it's not like that where we grew up in Kentucky, and. <laughs> Every kid from this age, from five years old, you know, has a pitching coach and, you know, everybody thinks their kid's going to make it to the majors. And I wonder, you had such great longevity. I wonder if it helped you pitching later. You didn't really start pitching till you're 16. Do you feel like that benefited you uh, in the long run? I think so. You know, I was a, a lanky kid at 6'4", uh, slender, weighed probably 100 when I first started to pick probably 160 pounds when I went into high school at 15, 16 years old. So right. pitching, uh, I think, uh, when you look at it, it was an exercise. And as I, I got better at it, uh, I, I think it became, I said to myself, that might be a job. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Livelihood. So wow. when I signed at 18, right out of high school, I, you know, Dean DeJure said, once you sign, you're going to become a professional athlete. you got to carry yourself a little different. you got to do things that the organization wants you to do, an affiliate organization. So I was very fortunate. Cal McClish, as I said, took me to winter ball. I was 19, 20 years old and pitching in Puerto Rico against a lot of really established stars like Clemente, Cepeda, uh, Gonzalez, you know, Pagan. So, I mean, these guys were – were starts in their own right. And then all of a sudden, 
I started to, to catch on to what this was all about, and I got good at it. So it took a little while. It didn't know it didn't happen overnight. Believe me. Sure, sure, that is so quick. Also, your story reminds me, like to put it in different terms. It's like you're in a band and you play the trumpet, and the the guy goes, "You know what? You're pretty good at trumpet. Why don't you come over here and try and play guitar?" And and you're like, "Yeah." And then they taught me four chords, and then I became a legend. I mean, that's. That is so unique, especially yeah. like we talk about in this day of specialization and kids having coaches early. And also you were known, speaking to your point, Rex, about uh, saving his arm all that time. You were known as a guy uh, that finished games, complete games. You were that guy. Uh, do you think that was part of, like Rex said, saving your arm or was it just different times? Well, you know, I think – the complete game situation happened with, with Leo DeRocher. I, I was a, a pretty good hitter too. So he would leave me in ball games a lot of times because I could butt, move the runners up and hit them, you know, put, put the ball in play. And uh, he would come a lot of times in ball games in Chicago. Uh, he would walk by the bench and, I, and I'd be sitting there and it's like the seventh or eighth inning. He says, Hey, big fellow, we're giving the bullpen a rest today. Like that. <laughs> or warming up in the bullpen prior to the game, he says, hey, you're game to win or lose today. Like that. Wow. So, I mean, it was a confidence builder, too. Right? And I enjoyed that part of it. You know, 260 complete ball games, 67 complete ball games. You know, I, when I look at it, I enjoyed pitching. It, it, it was a, it, to me, sometimes late in the game was a test to see if you can complete the ball game get the last three to six outs and uh, to win a ball game. There's got to be so much mental, you know, that goes on, you know, with you and with yourself and the batters. I, I want you to try to explain something to me. I've been trying to follow what's going on the last few weeks in, in pitching and in the, in baseball. When you played though, going back, I think yourself, Bob Gibson, they lowered the mound. Um, yeah, can, they lowered the mound. Can you, can you explain to me why they did that? And, well, Gibson I mean, and, and a lot of players, that, that, that 68 season, I think there was maybe six or seven 20-game winners in the National League and four or five in the American League. And the dominant part of playing the game is basically pitching. Gibson had a, a 120-25 ERA. He won the Cy Young. He won 22 ball games That year I won 20. Uh, Necro, 120, Gaylord Perry, Marischal. There were so many guys that were winning 20 games. Uh, the league all of a sudden said, well, pitching is too dominant. Uh, the mound is 18 inches. We're going to lower it to 12 to 13 inches. The tallest mounds in baseball were in Houston uh, with the Astros and Chavez Ravine with the Dodgers. You know, and, and all of a sudden – these pitchers are all having excellent seasons. We're going to lower the mound and see exactly if pitching is still going to be that dominant, which it was that, that following year of 69, there were still 20 game winners in baseball. And I was one of them, but uh, I just think that pitching uh, can be successful as much as it can be. If you've got a good catcher, the catchers yeah. are so important. I had Randy Hunley for years. Gibson had uh, McCarver, 
Uh, Marichal had Haller. Jeez, uh, Louis Tiant had uh, Carlton Fisk. I mean, there's so many guys. And the, the Dodgers had, oh, let me see. They had uh, Roseboro. Uh, and I think they had another. I can't think of the other catcher they had. But, you know, when you kept Colfax and Drysdale winning some, and Padres winning so many games, it doesn't always fall on the pitcher. It's that catcher that knows what to call, where to put the sign, the positioning, and and games are won like that. And it it doesn't take much to to say that while well, he did his job, the catcher does his job too. Rex, continue with that point because it's interesting. But I want to know: Did yeah. they lower it in the middle of the season? No, no. It started well, okay. after the season was over. When Gibson won the Cy Young, following spring training, come '69, they lowered them out. <laughs> It's, it's like, it, it's it's so like during the, the training and then they lowered the mounds in all the ballparks for you, Rex. So you can understand since you don't know baseball, like Fergie yes. and I do, it'd be like during <laughs> the era, your era where it was center dominated in a lot of ways, them raising right. the basket a foot. Yeah. That's on, meant, you know, <laughs> That's weird. It's so you know, weird. So, so to, to go back though, in baseball right now, uh, I want you to explain it to, to us. Um, apparently, you know, they're, they're cracking down on foreign substances on baseballs. Now, how long has this been going on? 10 years, 50 years. Um, and why has it become such a big deal right now? Well, I think putting a foreign substance on the ball has been going on for 25, 30 years. Uh, Bill Reagan used Slippery Elm. Gaylord Perry used Vaseline. Uh, Jim Bunning used Clear Pine Tar, which I did too. Early in the season in April, when it's cold, you're playing in, in either New York, Chicago, Pittsburgh. I mean, in Montreal, in Montreal it's, you're pitching in 40-degree weather sometimes. Yeah. Late in the season, same thing. Huh. Oh, in the playoffs, World Series, I think stick them can enhance you getting a better grip on the ball. I don't know. Well, now they say it, it gives a better spin ratio. <laughs> right, right. I'm not sure. But now they're cracking down. The only substance you can put on the ball is maybe rosin. And the rosin is on the mound. But guys use other things. What about the sunscreen? Yeah, well, sunscreen, it's, it's sticky. It's some kind of substance. You know, for years, Tommy John, and I think it was – possibly Drysdale and a few other guys in the Dodgers would cut the ball with, with their, with their, uh, with their belt uh, situation. Oh, really? <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Pat Corrales, Pat Corrales was a catcher in the Philly organization. He would scrape the ball along his shin guard and throw it back to the pitcher. You know, they change the ball every pitch almost now. The yeah. ball hits dirt, change it. I would love to, to have balls that had a little dirt on them, grass stain, right. you ball a, little, a little different way, you know, fill the ball with a little dirt, rub it up, the ball sinks, sails, that type of thing. But now they're cracking down on foreign substances because of no, that. Why? They, they think because the pitcher is too dominant. Okay. The batting averages are really, really bad now, uh, come 2020 and 2021. Guys are hitting below 200. Guys are still hitting home runs. 
but the batting averages are down. RBIs are still there, but the batting averages are down. Not many players are hitting 300. And cracking, that's, cracking that's down. Advantage. On that's the advantage they think has been given to the pitcher. So they're trying to level the playing field. Like oh, so. Uh, so yeah, in some respect. Yeah. Will will cracking down like this just straight away? Will it? Uh, will pitchers be a little more wild? You know, they it, can't. It could happen where guys maybe get clipped on a pitch every so often because they use a brand new ball every mm-hmm. pitch. At one time, the umpires had to rub uh, with that Mississippi mud, rub six dozen balls up. Now they're using twelve to thirteen dozen balls for a game because every every pitch they throw a ball out. If it hits the dirt after every out, they throw the ball out. The third out in the inning. The ball's hit to the outfield. The outfielder throws it in the stands. Or the third out is at first base. The first baseman gives it to a kid <laughs> along the, the first <laughs> yeah. base line. So, you know, I just think that, uh, they, as you said, level of plane is a little different. But they're using so many balls per game. Uh, and the balls are not really rubbed up. So you'll see a guy on the mound wetting a uh, the ball, wetting his, his tongue, and then he rubs the ball yeah. up. We weren't allowed to do that. You had to right. be off the off the mound, off the surface of the mound, the dirt. You could do it on the grass, rub the ball up, come back up, and uh, and pitch for the ball. But now that you know, if Gaylord Perry, and Bob Shaw, Bryce, <laughs> all these guys, and uh, and uh, Phil Reagan could put suck four subs on the ball, the ball would be doing some crazy things. <laughs> <laughs> If I knew, I'd go out there. I'd just so much sunscreen. I'd, I'd have pomade all over my hair. Probably yep. still have toothpaste in my mouth. I would take advantage of every way I could. And I guess they were, but cracking down. It seems like in baseball, it's so much ebb and flow to that. They, you know, we're saying now the baseballs were too juiced a few years ago. And right. The, yeah. You know, Rallies so it's like rallies wouldn't come, wouldn't come clean and said because of all the home runs hit. The ball's wound too tight. It has a, instead of having a cork center, it has a rubber center. <laughs> yeah, well, it looked there, like there was it a theory. Then. They wanted us to, to pitch from 70 feet, move the mound back 70 feet instead of <laughs> 60 feet, six inches, which would be crazy. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you're throwing grenades in there. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, the velocity would be a lot less. The ball would have a different plane to it. Uh, hitters got an advantage. They use pine tar. They have, they have, uh, they have, some of them have cork bats. The bats are lighter, longer, and they can do what they want a lot of times with bats, but not a, not a pitcher. And you know what? One time, here's another theory that Oakland started it because of the fact that they had, you weren't allowed to use light color shoes, but Oakland had white shoes. All the pitching gloves had to be tan or black. Now, gloves are red, purple, green, gray, white. They go along with the colors of the team. Yeah. <laughs> My whole Crazy. career, I used a Rawlings glove that was, was tan, almost saddle color. That was it. I never used another a- colored glove. But now you can multicolored gloves, multicolored yeah. shoes. <laughs> it's all changed. <laughs> it has changed. Yeah. Um, Fergie, I want to go, I want to go back. What was what was it like growing up 
uh, in Canada and your, and, and what do you know about your mom? I mean, she had direct descendants, uh, who came up the underground railroad and, um, you know, what was it like for you, not only growing up there, but what was your experience like as a young, a young African-American man playing baseball in, in the States and in a lot of places that where, um, you know, it wasn't real uh, welcoming for, for a young black man. Well, you know, I, I started to play, as I said, in 1962 with the Phillies and I, I got signed. Uh, the first city I played in was Miami and uh, I'm trying to think of the gentleman's name. Uh, oh man, it just slips my mind now. But he had given us a little testament. There was there was four players of color on the team: Alex Johnson, uh, a kid named Wayne Green, uh, uh, Reno Garcia, and myself. And we could, we couldn't go to Miami Beach. <laughs> we couldn't eat oh, certain God. restaurants. Uh, we had to give our on the road trips in that the Florida State League. Uh, there was Fort Lauderdale, Tampa, St. Pete, uh, Palatka, so many different Tampa. Uh, we had to give our meal money, our money to the white players when the bus stopped, and they would buy whatever we wanted, hamburger, hot dogs. We didn't make a whole lot of money. We got $2 a day meal money. <laughs> so you weren't getting a whole lot of money. And they would bring the food back to the bus. Uh, in spring training, we, we couldn't eat in certain restaurants in the spring. But I mean, it was it was a little different, and it all changed in '64. But to get back to the cities where I played, I, I played first was Miami, the second city was Chattanooga, Tennessee, and the third city was Little Rock. Yeah. And Little Rock was kind of the worst. I played with right. Dick Allen, and and there were four players of color on that team: Marcelino Lopez, a Cuban; Richard Quito, Panamanian; Dick Allen from Pennsylvania, and Fergie Jenkins. From, from Canada, and three pitchers and one outfielder, infielder, Dick Allen. And for, his name was Richie, and then he changed his name to Dick. But uh, <laughs> he, he had a little tough time playing in Little Rock because we're the first players of color in 1964 to play there. And it was a little tough on Dick because he was a regular, played there every day. And he first started in center field, then they moved him to third, and then later on they moved him to first. But uh, – he uh, suffered a little bit, but uh, verbal abuse, letting it, let him know he, he wasn't uh, liked and on the ball club at the time with the Arkansas Travelers. Wow. That's just, it took, it took just a little while to come around, but other than that, uh, you know, the, the, ple- the people really gravitated to Dick because he was a, he was a great athlete. I mean, he ended up uh, hitting something like 35 home runs that first year. Uh, with Triple A, a lot of RPIs, and he really played well. Made the All Star team, and then the next year he was Rookie of the Year in the Phillies. <laughs> so, but uh, it, and I took took me a Marcelino got graduated, so did Richard and myself to the Phillies. So it took a while for us to come up, but Dick was the first. You know, uh, while we while we were, um, you know, I was brushing up on you. It's talking to my father about you yesterday. I, I said, having Fergie Jenkins on, he said, Ferguson Jenkins. I said, yep, Ferguson Jenkins. <laughs> so uh, he'll, he'll be excited to, uh, to listen to this one. Um, you played for the Globetrotters? Yeah, three seasons in the offseason. <laughs> uh, How did this come about? Yeah, 
Joanne Zavino was the marketing individual with the Globetrotters. And their head office back in the 60s was on Michigan Avenue in Chicago. So he came out to the ballpark. And this is a great story. He came out to the ballpark and we're early in, in all day games. And this guy comes to the ballpark with a $500 suit, three-piece suit and a briefcase. And he's walking down the left field line and he's waving, waving. And Rich and I and I are standing in the outfield shagging fly balls. And I said, Rick, this guy wants either one of us. I waved at him and he went, yeah, you, yeah, you. So I walked over to the, to the, to the wall towards the bullpen where our bullpens in left field. And he said, Ferguson, are you going to go back to Canada when the season's over? I said, yeah. He said, uh, got an offer for you. We want you to be the pitcher in the skit where Meadowlark hits a home run off you every night. Meadowlark Lemon. Yeah, to, to in the third quarter. I played the third quarter every night. And, and into the third quarter, the first couple of minutes, they called timeout. And Curly says, let's play baseball like that. So Curly's the catcher. Bobby Joe Mason is the pitcher. And you got uh, Leon Hilliard. You got a few of that globe side. And they're all playing the outfield. And the first pitch is thrown over Meadowlark's head. And they said, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We have a pitcher on our ball club. We got a 20-game winner, Ferguson Jenkins. And I have my sweats on. I take him off, run out there, warm up, throw a couple of pitches, give up a home run to Meadowlark. And this is how it all started. And then I was involved in the out-of-bounds skit, the referee skit. And I played the third quarter, 15 minutes every night. And it started <laughs> in, in Montreal. It's amazing. Three Rivers, all the way down to my hometown, Chatham, Windsor. And, and I played about 20, 25 games. So it, was, it, it got successful. Now we're we'll pushing to the, to the U.S. We're going to go to Pittsburgh. We're going to go to Cincinnati, some of the cities where I played ball, and Chicago. And it, it, that first year, I probably played 45, 50 games. Uh, in total, <laughs> I probably played about 180-plus ball games in three seasons. With the wow. Were they, what uh, did, what? Was there ever a city that that – caught on to the confetti in the bucket trick? Well, you know, it, that, that, that was one of the skits that they changed. The referee, a lot of times, would stand on the edge of the, of, of, of the, of the floor. And in some of these cities we played, we played portable floors. And especially in the colleges, they had a portable yeah. floor that's up off the, off, off, off the cement. Or we played in hockey arenas where the, the floor is up off the ice surface. And he'd stand there with his arms folded. Now, Curly Neal started, instead of the confetti, he, he left about two or three inches of water in the bottom of the <laughs> He hit the rim with it. Knock him off the, knock him off the court. And people would go nuts because you hit the referee with water instead of confetti. So that's... That was another skit that uh, really happened <laughs> a lot of the people because of the fact that no more because during halftime he would earlier one of the guys would rip up a bunch of plate paper instead of confetti it was paper to throw on into the crowd now they knocked the snot out of the referee <laughs> so but it, it it was different I mean Meadowlark just you had to have fun. he captivated people by pulling kids out of the audience or a young well, lady. Josh and I, 
we grew up, we grew up going to go. I did anyway. I, yeah. I did you, gosh, I, I went, yeah. the Globetrotters would come every year to Owensboro, Kentucky. And I started going down to the Owensboro sports center. And, you know, I, by the time I was 10, you know, I felt like I knew metal lark and curly, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I, uh, they would come and you know, they'd wave and all that. And then fortunately way later on, I got to actually meet them, which was, you know, amazing. But it's just, you guys had to have fun traveling city to city. And what did your baseball team think about you doing this? Did they, were they fine with it? Were they worried about you getting hurt? Well, I, I had a conference with John Holland, who was the general manager. I said, I, I said, John, I'm going to be the pitcher that every night gives up a home run to Metal Rock Lemon. And I didn't tell him I was playing the third quarter. <laughs> <laughs> Bet you did. <laughs> so... Uh, we played in the amphitheater in Chicago and a lot of Cubs front office people were there and they watched me score a few baskets and they said, we didn't think you were going to play. <laughs> How am I going to stay in shape running up and down the floor? So playing the third quarter and, you know, a lot of the cities where we went, we'd have shoot arounds. We'd, we'd play in Pittsburgh or Cincinnati or, you know, we played a lot of campuses. We played in Lansing or Ypsilanti and we We'd have shoot-arounds around 2 o'clock. Guys would get out there and, and really play some pickup games, and then they'd play that night. So it kept me in pretty good shape running up and down the court. But it did. Sure, it sure. Did. It's a, people don't realize when Rex and I were, were younger watching that, how the, the Globetrotters were like the circus. They were yeah. like, you know, stars came to town. It was so, I remember getting in a fight with my, like, fifth-grade teacher, an argument, like, saying he said the Lakers – could beat the Globetrotters. <laughs> There's no way. The Globetrotters have never lost. They're way better. Than, I've seen the Lakers. Yeah. I mean, they, that, they, they were magic to us. They played college All-Americans a lot yeah. of times in, in the in 50s and 60s and would beat the college All-Americans because they, they do so many skits yeah. uh, that they, they for, for shaving points off what they had to do. And each one of those skits were two points. So it was a <laughs> basket. So right, and right. Lark and Jackie Jackson <laughs> and Mel Davis, all these guys would, would do certain skits and they 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 run the score up. They just couldn't Not the game to run skits. So, <laughs> when they played against the the Washington Generals, they didn't have a chance. All the years I well, three years I played, we never lost a game. <laughs> we never lost. We go to Hawaii. And play on a on a on a on an aircraft carrier, you know, with docked in San Diego, yeah, or we play in Hawaii. I mean, it was just incredible to play with some of these guys. They were entertainers, but also great athletes. Sure. You watch sure. basketball now? You watch basketball? Yeah, for yeah I've been watching the, the last couple of games with Milwaukee and, and Atlanta, and yeah. uh, I just think that some of the things that they do now charging and all the different and a three point the three point shot now has not ruined the game but it's it made the game so impacted the scores are 120 points now where yeah i think i think you're right it just the extra points now you have a specialist or two or three that all they do is shoot three pointers that's all they do mm-hmm. You, you're reading uh, Steve Kerr's mind. We had Steve on a couple of weeks ago, and he said, you know, the, the, the balance has been shifted so much toward the offense that 
it, you know, we got to do something and we're probably going to see that, see that yeah. coming up. No, no defense. You've written, no defensive basketball. Yeah. Right. It's None right now. Shooters. You can't touch anybody. You can shoot. Yeah. Uh, so many guys, it, it take young, he's a smaller athlete, six foot tall. Uh, mm-hmm. And the fellow with the, the, the San Francisco team. Uh, uh, Stephen Curry. Curry. Yeah. Stephen, I mean, Stephen. this guy has changed the game. I mean, right. he, he shoots two or three hundred three pointers every season. It's amazing. <laughs> he's it's breaking amazing. All, everybody's record. Harper's record, all the guys. Everybody. Hey, hey, Fergie, you've got a a documentary coming out. Yeah, it's going to be viewed on this coming Wednesday. Fantastic. Uh, Tell us about it. uh, On uh, one of the Chicago stations. Tell us about it. How long long has it been in the works? Well, they they thought about it for about a year, and uh, I uh, was involved in it – about uh, almost four months, five months ago, where they wanted to put some footage together on some of the tragedies that I've had in my life. You know, I I lost my mom early. Uh, She died very young, 52 years old. And it was during the the season when I was playing in 1970. She got sick in 68 with cancer. And then she passed away in 1970. Uh, The funeral is like on a Friday. I flew to Montreal and pitched on a Saturday because my mom said she'd lived her life. You go ahead and live your life. Uh, your life is in sports, baseball. Uh, go ahead and, and, and play. And Leo DeRocher at the time didn't want me to pitch. I said, Leo, I'm fine. I think my mother would want me to play. Uh, I lost a wife to uh, a car accident. She got pneumonia in the hospital. There was a Suicide, murder, suicide. I lost a daughter and a fiance. And then my last wife, uh, she got sick. Uh, she had a stomach problem, passed away. She got sick in 2014, died in 2018. So they wanted to put all these different uh, situations, tragedies in my life. And I, I, for one time I said no. And then I said, you know, maybe people want to know things that happen to athletes not because they're in the public eye, but we're just like everybody else. I've had those situations happen to me uh, a lot of times, uh, one during a season and a couple of them during the off season. And just the other one, just before I got inducted in the hall of fame, when Marianne passed and she had pneumonia, I, I left to go to do a press conference with Gaylord Perry and Rod Carew in New York. And she was in the hospital at the time, contracted pneumonia when I'd come back, the doctor said they couldn't save her. Oh, I'm so it, was, sorry. It, it, it was something that, and, and it's a tragedy. You know, I, I told him before, I said, I've broken down lots of times. You don't have to be ashamed to cry. That's right. I cried lots of times. And I just went in a separate room by myself in the house and just felt guilty, started crying. Yeah. Well, I, 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 th- I thank you so much for doing that and sharing those stories because it, it, we do put athletes and entertainers on a pedestal and just think about their wonderful life we wish they had. But it, to humanize uh, yourself and to be vulnerable to people so we can it provides perspective for people that uh, otherwise it's unattainable to, to know what you went through and to think, oh, yeah, they were just people. 
just like I am every day and my tragedies or whatever, not that happened in my life happens in everyone's life, you know? So it's great perspective and I appreciate you uh, a sharing. So I'm glad you did that. Can't wait to see you. Yeah. And it, it, Raymond, uh, uh, my second wife's son who I adopted, I adopted him when he was four and now he's 37, 38 years old. He had a huge part in this documentary. Uh, you'll see him. He's got a big beard. I mean, he's, he's turned into a real man. But the, the nice thing about it is we together went to a therapist. Uh, I think 11, 12 at the time when his, when his mom, Marianne, passed away. And it was it, it grabbed him uh, more than it did me, I think, because he was still in public school. And he, he got a, had an anger issue. Oh, man. I used to go, I had to go to school. The principal would phone me at 10, 11 o'clock in the morning and say, Mr. Jenkins, you have to come and console your son. You have to come to get him because he wants to fight everybody. He wants to, he's angry. And I said, well, it's only part of his life because he just lost his mother. And uh, I think they they didn't realize that the, the tragedy and all the pressure put on a youngster that really can't cope with it. And Raymond really didn't cope with it until he got older. And he, he displays this in, 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 the, in this caption he has uh, during this documentary. And I, to me, when I seen it, I started breaking down again because he broke down. And he didn't, he didn't break down until he got older. I'll echo what Josh said. I want to thank you. You know, you touched on, <clears throat> you touched on something else. You know, I, I know I grew up in an era, so I'm sure you grew up. In there. It wasn't uh, wasn't cool. Uh, wasn't even really. You weren't supposed to talk about if you went to see a therapist. Uh, right. you supposed to reach out for help. You're supposed to handle everything like a man on your own. You know, no, right. that's not how life works. And you know, I, I I think you know my story. I've been down. I've been up. Uh, you obviously have. Josh has. We all have. And right. um, some of us do it in front of other people. Um, you could you could walk off in the sunset and never talk about any of this stuff, but that you're doing it. I'm telling you, Fergie, it's going to help a lot of people. I've been in therapy and in, in rehab a few times and you sit there and if you listen for an hour and there's 10 people tell those, tell those, tell their story, you'll, you'll, you're glad you have yours. Um, Everybody has their stuff and we all cope with it differently. And it, I'm not surprised to hear you say, you know, he didn't really exhibit it the anger and stuff until later, you know, how could he process? He was just a kid, you know, For years. He kept all that in, you know, yeah. years. I'm really amazed at you. Um, dumbfounded that, you know, the stigma of mental health is really, it's still obviously fluid, you know, in sports, but really just now being sort of um, talked about and accepted that people need help. Um, and the stigma in society is still there. I have friends that, when they go through problems and I suggest therapy, you're like, you shy away from it for the same reasons. But for you to have the foresight to, to do it back then and to know that your stepson really needed it really blows me away. That's a kudos to you. There's not a lot of people that, that had that intelligence. Well, you know, uh, I knew I needed help when, when I lost Marianne, because, it was just, it was a tragedy because she had the accident 
in, in December of uh, 90. And she was in intensive care 35 days. And I went every day to the hospital and, and she had a, a larynx tube where, where she, she couldn't talk, but I could try to read her lips. And unfortunately, as I said, she passed because of pneumonia. She was on her back all that time and fluid built up. But Raymond went one time and he seen his mom yeah. with all these tubes in her. He, he was terrified. He didn't want to ever go back. I know. Yeah, he, he didn't want to go back. But the thing was, every day I went, and then the day that I got inducted in the Hall of Fame, uh, I went up to the hospital and I, and I showed her the clipping of the paper. I said, I got to go the next day to a press conference in New York. And then when I came back, she passed. And that was like, it was like, it's like a kick in the so-and-so, you know? Yeah. And she's in a separate room. I'd taken all the tubes, whatnot, uh, away. And I had a chance to be, to, to say goodbye to her. Yeah. You know? That grabbed me really, really tough. That, that day was a tough day for me, you know? That you're sharing it, man. It's powerful. And, you know, I know that I, I talk about some of my stuff at times and afterwards, you know, it's hard to talk about, but it's a, it's cathartic. And I hope you feel that oh, yeah. way. Cause you know, I, we're going to have my kids help me out. people. Ray, Good. Raymond's really helped me and my three daughters. Uh, Fantastic. Kelly, Dolores and Kimberly, and they all live in Canada and we talk periodically on, on a weekly basis, which is, that was good therapy back then in, in, in the 90s for me, for sure. And now with this documentary, it's even, I'm not sure if it's going to help in the long run, but it's good to bring it out again. You know? I think it's going to help. I can't, I can't wait. Let's uh, lighten it up a little bit. What's your favorite movie? My favorite movie? Ooh, uh -huh. You know, Ben-Hur. There you go. That, I watched that um, uh, during the Christmas holidays. I enjoy watching the Star Wars movies. And I think before long, we're going to be actually, I might not be around for it, but, uh, you know, visiting galaxies and inner space thing, type, type things, visits. Nice. And then people are going to go, there really is E.T. He's still around. <laughs> he's, been here. he's been here for a while. He never left. Time. That's right. He never, he never phoned home. Well, <laughs> Any other uh, movies real quick that jump out? You know, the, the bad boy movies with uh, Will uh, Smith and Martin. Yeah, Martin. Yeah. yeah, Martin Lawrence. You know, you know I, I, I've watched, uh, I'd say, movies with, with, uh, with Clark Gable, Gone with the Wind. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. You, there and you watch it and you go, you know, that's a lot of history, you know. Other than that, Josh, uh, I'm not a big movie goer, but I, I, I watch movies a lot of times on TV. They come on. We were no. just trying to figure. My dad is uh, late seventies, but who was who was born uh, same year? Josh was just saying. Uh, you were born in '42, correct? Correct. Yeah. And it was really interesting. Uh, Muhammad Ali was born your year. Um, yeah. Aretha Franklin was born your year. Um, and so were, interestingly enough, Joe Biden and right. Mitch McConnell, the two guys basically yeah. leading our country right now. We're, right. we're born in 1942. Wow. Pretty good year. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. 
And uh, I, so, I, so you've I, seen a lot. Sagittarians, supposedly they're strong individuals. You know, okay. there's, a, there's a, because of the sign of the archer, but they've got a goal to reach and uh, they're pointed in that direction. And uh, they try to reach that goal. Well, you, uh, you make Sagittarians proud. And, and Stan, you're definitely a strong man. It's been through a lot. Uh, if you could have dinner with anyone in the world, just sit down, talk, who, who might that be? Ooh, wow. Dinner. You know, you know I've, I've met Jim Brown a couple of times, but uh, with <laughs> just personal appearances uh, and dinners in Cleveland or some, someplace in bigger cities, just to sit down and pick his brain on, on what he went through as a football player or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, somebody from a different sport uh, that uh, went through a, a lot of different uh, situations. So, I'd like to come to that awesome. dinner too. And uh, uh, throughout time, dead or alive, uh, like a music group or, or uh, just a singer that you could sit front row center, dead or alive, you could just take in the concert. Well, you know, I've met uh, a lot of the guys with, with uh, Cream, uh, Clapton, Eric Clapton. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, as you said, Gladys Knight, uh, the, the Pips. You know, back then, in, in my era, Barry Gordy and, and, and Motown was really, really big. Oh, yeah. uh, the Shy Light were from Chicago, uh, and I've seen them perform. Uh, you know, maybe Sam Cooke. Uh, he's oh, an ass wow. right now. That's uh, great. I got an interesting story for you. In, in 1962, uh, we, we stayed in Miami. We stayed at the Sir John Hotel, where it was a hotel that was a conglomeration where all the black stars would, would go. James Brown, Jerry U.S. Bond, Little Anthony, the Imperials, and they all performed at that hotel. Wow. Uh, I didn't see a lot of them, but they, they were headliners. So. That's amazing. You know, to, to, to meet James Brown, he went through. <laughs> I bet. James Brown. Uh, as I said, Sam Cooke would be another individual just to talk to. to great all. list. They went through as entertainers. Yeah, hey, great hey, list. Hey, Fergie. Fergie, I'm so glad that we connected via Twitter. I, I want to ask, though, what, what made you start? Uh, what made you get on Twitter? Uh, a gentleman in, in Chicago. Uh, started the Facebook and the Twitter. And I said, let's do it. Let's see what happens. People want to be connected. Yeah. And I do some cameos from time to time. Nice. And what's nice about it is a lot of Chicago fans, like I, I think for Father's Day, I must have did 50 Father's Day selections, which was a, a lot of fun. People phone in, hey, I'm Rex, I'm so-and-so, I'm Jimmy. I'm, you know, say hi to my dad for Father's Day. And I, I did that. Or oh, birthday. That's cool. Yeah, I'm glad you did it. I have a lot of fun, uh, you know, following you and seeing all the stuff throughout history. I love just seeing what you guys comment on yourself, Rod Carew. Uh, you know, I grew up watching Rod, just an unbelievable swing and what a nice man. Hopefully we're going to get him on. Uh, Fergie, yeah. I can't thank you enough uh, for coming on. Uh, please come back sometime. Okay. Yeah, let me know. Wait. I'll be glad to do it. Can't wait to see the doc documentary on Wednesday. And right. uh, thank you, Ferguson Jenkins. Thank right. You. Hey, the number thank one you for thing, please don't cry. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your honesty right. and your openness. Thanks, Josh. It was really, really a pleasure. Right. Thank you, Fergie. My pleasure. Thanks, Guys, bud. Take care. All Thank the best. You. All right. Josh Ferguson Jenkins. Fergie wow. Jenkins. What'd you think? He was, what a beautiful human. Nice man and really intelligent. Oh, my gosh. Just uh, traveled a, a globetrotter was a globetrotter while he was one of the best pitchers in the world. That's unbelievable. I couldn't believe he didn't start pitching till he's 15 or 16. That's that's amazing. It's, it seems absurd. And, and what I found really funny was he's he was talking about how great his high school pitchers were. And I yep. kept wanting to go, he, he named them off, five of them. But yeah. they were our pitchers. And I wanted to go, yeah, but none of them were Fergie Jenkins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he named his other first baseman. I know. Like, they were all great, so I didn't have to just what what a great I mean, teammate. Yeah, exactly. What a great teammate. Exactly. And I couldn't believe he liked Star Wars. I wouldn't pick that in a hundred thousand years. No, but Fergie great. Jenkins. Yeah. I, but I, that's what I love. You know, I'm glad he talked about getting on the Twitter. You know, it's yeah. Uh, Man, seventy-eight years old, seventy-nine. Um, I, my my dad certainly can't handle Twitter. He's a couple years younger. I like that. I like that we're learning new things about Fergie Jenkins at this age of stage of his life. I mean, you know, a theme of a lot of the share. people that we've had on that have been is intellectual curiosity. Yeah, he's not just going to be like ah, old Twitter schmitter. Yeah. He's out doing it, seeing what's going on. That's you know what keeps the mind relevant to what's happening today. He uh, he was spectacular. I agree. I agree. What a what a fan! And I can't wait to watch the doc now. And you talk about some heavy stuff that he's been through. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what a guy. At one point, it was funny. I thought he I, when he was saying the bands he liked, he was like uh, Gladys Knight. Pips. I thought it was almost like he'd be like, Gladys Knight, I like, but the Pips, yeah. they were a bunch of assholes. And they, she, she carried them. They're over. No, it looked like he didn't like for a second. And then he was Those Pips. <laughs> yeah. Gladys Knight, mm-hmm. yes. Pips, no. No. And <laughs> go to the Pips. All right, buddy. Well, um, enjoy the playoffs. Can't wait. Let's go. Got to keep rooting on those suns, man. Um, all right, bud. Well, next time, Tuesday, we'll do yes, this sir. again. The Michael Chapman Show with super sexy, super cool, super awesome Josh Hopkins. We'll do it. Powered by basketballnews.com. Subscribe, rate, and review. See you next week. <laughs>